worship team. Well, if you didn't know it was March when you woke up this morning, you remembered it was March and not June. Boy, it's good, good to worship with you today. Today's message is entitled, The Greatest. The Greatest. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. We'll get there in a second. But uh, William Shakespeare once said, Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others have greatness thrust upon them. Now, the way William Shakespeare says it, it seems like greatness is something that can be gained or lost by multiple means. Either it comes upon you and you receive it passively, or you earn it by your effort. Either way, he says, you shouldn't fear greatness. Now, I don't think there's many in this room who don't want to be great at something. Now, you may realize I will never be the greatest at this or that, but all of us want to be great at something, even if it's just one dish, uh, one meal that's our meal, you know, that we're good at making, or uh, one hobby, or whatever that might be. Others consider greatness the act of sheer will. Of course, you can't talk about greatness without quoting Muhammad Ali. He said, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. I spoke my greatness into existence. The truth is when you add ER, here's a little English class here. If you add ER or EST to any word, you're measuring something against something else. For anyone to be the greatest, they must be greater than someone else. And it's a life led by comparison. You're always sizing yourself up against someone else. We strive to stand above and apart from other people. And so every person in your life is either a threat <laughs> to your greatness, they're beneath you, or once in a while you'll find somebody that's your equal as well. So when you're pursuing greatness, again, you live and die by comparison. And we can all t attest to the fact that that is a very hard tiresome, lonely life, isn't it? It's not fun. Now, I proposed to you before that comparison has no place within the body of Christ. In the past, I've sought to delete the word success from our vocabulary for that very same reason, because as Christians, we're not chasing success. We're in a process of maturity that never ends until we step into eternity with Jesus. You're a work in progress. So success connotates the fact that you've arrived or you've achieved something. And so in measuring maturity in the church, our measurement is against each other. It's against Jesus, the Son of God. He's our standard. He's the one we look to and we live up to, knowing that we will never be Jesus, but he is still our goal and our God. As Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly ministry, he spoke plainly about how it would all end. With his death at the hands of the religious leaders and the Roman government, the bad guys win and he'd be put on a cross and then resurrected three days later. And we talked about how this defied every plan the disciples ever had for the Messiah. Any idea, anything they'd ever been taught, this sounded nothing like that. Then 
he challenges them to pick up their cross daily. And that broke them of their pursuit of fame or fortune or anything else because their whole life was to be a, a, a life lived um, with uh, really just sacrifice, a, a living sacrifice, a pursuit of God no matter the cost. Each lesson, though, he teaches prior to his sacrifice on the cross was to give them the proper perspective that they needed to have to be truly his disciples in the days ahead where they, he would, they wouldn't have him anymore. And so that's how we need to approach the 40 days of Lent, is now that they know that Jesus is the Messiah, now they're ready for the deeper teaching. We've chosen to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We've chosen, many of us, to be his disciples, and now he's clearly stating to us what we need to know. Those things that are earth-shattering to what we believed our life would be about or should be about. Even the woman who anointed his feet with the expensive oil and her tears, washing his feet with her hair, was teaching them that what was really valuable in life wasn't justice and retribution. What really was valuable in life was grace and love. So here's the next lesson, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I love how Jesus answers questions. Because he always answers it, but he never answers it the way we expect him to. He never does. They ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And basically, since heaven is eternal, they're asking the question, who is the greatest person of all time? They want to know who the goat of all is, right? And Jesus could have answered sarcastically and gone, me? He could have. But he doesn't. Instead, he doesn't answer their question right away, and he gets a child and brings the child right in front of them. Now, it doesn't tell us how old this child. In my mind, I'm thinking like three-year-old range. It could have been older, could have been younger. But you can imagine his disciples saying, what is he doing? Maybe they're like, we asked a simple question, and now he's bringing a kid into this? But maybe at this point, they're like, okay, Jesus is doing his thing. You know, <laughs> he, he never tells us straight out an answer. He either tells us a parable or uses some sort of imagery. What's he doing this time? And again, he blows their minds. I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't immediately answer their question about greatness. They wanted to know who's the greatest person of all time. Instead, he tells them how to gain entrance into heaven. This is how you get in the door. Let's not even talk about who the greatest is. This is how you get in. Now, turning from their sin makes sense because only the righteous can remain in God's presence. But becoming like a little child, I wonder if they shared an expression with Nicodemus. You remember when Nicodemus says, how may I inherit eternal life? And he says, yeah, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, how can a grown man go back in the Oh, no! Like, like, that might be their same expression. How do we become kids again? How is that to work? But the answer that Jesus gave to Nicodemus ties right in with his answers to the disciple. 
The idea, the answer to your question isn't in front of you in your idea of maturity and greatness is actually behind you. It's something you've already experienced. It's, it's regressing in some of your minds to a previous point in your life. Because to be born again means that you have to learn to eat again and drink again and sleep again, and walk and think and talk and dream. You know, so, so, and I'm going through that, right? I've got a baby in the house and he's learning to walk and he can stand for like a minute straight, no problem. And the physical therapist says, yeah, if he can stand more than 20 seconds, he can walk. But he doesn't have the confidence to walk on his own. And so we got this little walker thing. And he, every time he pushes that thing, he looks around and smiles. And it's like, where's my class? You know, <laughs> I'm doing this. I'm awesome. He's learning to walk. He's learning to talk. And so it's, it's, a, it's a daily journey. And every little syllable is excitement. And, and, and we got to go back to that. we got to go back to that face. To enter into the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean? To become like a little child is to become dependent again on someone greater than you for the answers to life. To not have all the answers or be in control, but to simply trust your heavenly Father. I mean, our goal from the time we're born all the way up is to become independent is to not need somebody else, to become strong and, and able to stand on our own and, and be in control. And our whole desire, ever since we're kids, mine is to be in control. And Jesus says, if you want entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to relinquish control. You've got to be dependent like you were when you were little. You've got to trust. You've got to go back. The simple faith of a child who has full confidence in their parents and wakes up excited for what the next day will bring. I, road trips as a kid, you know what I did? I slept. I played with my games. I tried to count how many different state license plates I could see. I didn't worry about how we were going to get there or if we had enough money to eat at, or if we were going to find gas at the gas station. I didn't worry about what we were going to do when we got there. My job was to just ride along. And, of course, I said, you know, when are we going to get there? Rob Milne taught my kids a song. He babysat them. He doesn't get to babysit them very often, him and Donna, because he taught them a song. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? How much longer? Mr. Rob taught me this. Mr. Rob taught me this. Blame him. Blame. And so every car trip, they start singing. I'm like, Rob. But, but we, I, I did that as a kid. Sometimes we can do that. But what he's getting at is the beautiful dependence on a father. How much time and energy do we waste worrying and striving for control and, and trying to get a place where we can be comfortable? There is no place. In his second sentence, Jesus fully answers their question. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that he does not exclude greatness um, from anyone. It says, 
anyone who becomes as humble as this little child. So greatness automatically in the kingdom of heaven is not exclusive and it's not comparison. It's anyone who does this as humble as this child. Now, why the humility of a child that determines greatness? If you think about the the people when we connect them with greatness, humility is not a defining factor, right? Michael Jordan, not humble. Muhammad Ali, definitely not humble. Babe Ruth, not humble. Napoleon Bonaparte, not humble, right? Greatness and humility don't seem to work together, but it does in this situation. Those who are great on this earth are always tooting their own horn and proclaiming their greatness. And can you see how confusing Jesus' definition of greatness might be to them? How can you be great if you don't draw people's attention to yourself? Greatness in heaven is like a child dependent on his father, still weak and far from maturity. I mean, it's, it's rocking their world. The world says this is greatness. But you're saying this is greatness? Well, I don't think they grasp the concept fully because only two chapters later when the topic comes up again, they start squabbling and fighting amongst themselves. Now the passage I'm about to read you, to you is in Matthew chapter 20. It also has a comparative passage in Mark 10, 35 through 45. In the passage we're about to read, James and John will approach Jesus about the topic of greatness and uh, their mother does the asking. They bring mom along to do it. In Mark's gospel, it's just James and John asking the question. So just like last week's passage that we, that we studied that was in all four gospels, this passage is in two gospels. And so the story's told a little bit different, but I believe there's enough uh, that's exactly the same in the passage that is talking about the same exact passage just from two different perspectives. If you don't, didn't know it, helicopter parents existed 2,000 years ago. Overbearing, overprotective parents seeking their benefit of their children over others and beyond what is reasonable. And so whether their mom asked Jesus the question or James and John asked Jesus the question with their mom behind them, they were seeking greatness for themselves. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from the bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over the people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be must and <clears throat> excuse me. Whoever uh, wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So 
I, I don't decry James and John's mother for wanting the best for her sons. I mean, that's just natural human nature. But the request is like totally audacious. Out of everyone who's ever existed throughout the whole timeline, the planet Earth has been around. She says, can my two boys have the most prominent seat in all of eternity? I mean, who asked that? Maybe James and John thought they were entitled. I mean, we're two of the 12 disciples, <laughs> and we're brothers. And, you know, when Jesus has special extra teaching, we're always there. Forget about Peter. He's not a brother. And we were at the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus in all his glory. I mean, Peter spoke up, and he shouldn't have, but we saw Moses and Elijah. But it's almost laughable at the request is even being made. Because Jesus has already told them to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to have the humility of a child. Having your mommy ask for you to have the greatest seat in eternity is not really what he was implying. He didn't want us to become dependent on our earthly parents again. And so Jesus said plainly, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're saying. Then he asked, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? He's asking them if they're willing to suffer and die brutal deaths for him. Just the same thing he's about to do for them. And immediately they say, even emphatically, oh yes, we're able. Little did they know that in a few short days, when Jesus would be taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, they had a chance to stand there right there next to him and say, arrest me too. But that's not what happens, right? They were some of the special ones chosen to join him in the Garden. And, and one of the Gospels tells us that, that when the guards came to take Jesus, that John ran and they grabbed his cloak and they ripped him off. And I don't know if he had underwear on or not, but he ran off in the Garden with whatever he had left on and just fled. So it sounds like a noble cause, right? Dying for Jesus, suffering for Jesus. We can all say, yeah, I'd be willing to do that when we're living in relative peace right now. The truth is that the Bible tells us that they do suffer for Jesus. James, as you've heard recently, was the first one to be martyred out of all the disciples. And John was beaten, imprisoned, and eventually exiled to the island of Patmos for his following of Jesus. So they, I don't think they, they were lying in their response to Jesus. I, I think their desire was there, but they had no idea what they were agreeing to. But Jesus makes it clear, I'm not about showing favoritism. I'm not. Even though I'm pouring into you guys specifically, more than the other 12 or the hundreds of people that follow me around, I'm not about favoritism. It's not even my choice. The Heavenly Father chooses who goes in those positions. Now, finally, because word like that spreads, how come gossip spreads faster than good news? It spreads to the other disciples, and it makes them mad. It's just like Joseph with his brothers, right? How dare they think that they can rule over us? We're just as good as them. Peter's probably really mad. Like, hey guys, you cut me out here. Well, there were only two seats on the right and the left. I mean, 
What makes them better? And I'm sure some of them are thinking, that's not fair. Why didn't I think of asking that question before them, right? And they're falling back into their old ideas of favoritism and comparison. The world's pursuit of greatness tears down and divides where eternal greatness does the opposite. If in your pursuit of being great, it tears down and divides, you're not pursuing greatness the right way. That's how the world works. I will crush others to get where I want to be. But the kingdom of heaven works differently. Jesus wasn't having it from his disciples. These are the 12 men that will establish the church after his death and resurrection and ascension. These are the ones left that have to show the world what his character is like so they know who God is. And so to make it clear, greatness in heaven is like nothing you've ever seen before, guys. You're thinking the old way. What about the rulers and the powers and the authorities that you know in your life? Whether it be Herod, who is a Jewish puppet king of Rome, or Rome itself, or even the religious leaders. What are they like? They're ambitious. They're power-hungry. They're all about themselves. They're prideful. They do what they do to line their own pockets. Is that what the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you think that I'm establishing here? Heaven is nothing like that. He says, among you, it will be different. Among us, it's supposed to be different. Stop fighting. Stop arguing. Listen, how many times, maybe this is true of you too, have you ever lost a group or left a group or left a church because you got your feelings hurt? Because you didn't get recognized? Or, or all the hard work or labor you put into something that just got taken for granted. Yeah, we all have that, right? We all have hard feelings because we're not getting the credit we deserve. But, but maybe it's not the other people that were the problem. Maybe your motives for doing what you were doing was wrong. Maybe you were pursuing an earthly greatness instead of an eternal greatness. The true leader is a servant first. And the first is a slave. So now they've been told they've got to become like little kids. And now they're told that true greatness is in servants and slaves. So I've got to become like a kid and like a servant and a slave. Anybody see that in, in any of these, um, you know, major uh, positive thinking gurus? Anybody have any celebrity or, or any person that's made it in the business world write a letter that says this, or a book that says this is the way? you got to become like a kid again and a servant and a slave. The world doesn't work that way. And I can agree with you, it doesn't. But he's not talking about the world, is he? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. So let the world work the way it does. But our pursuit is not what we can experience and achieve in this limited lifespan. Our focus is on eternity. And thus is revealed the true nature of eternal greatness. 
It cannot be pursued because it's by its nature, those that truly are great are humble servants, not seeking their own benefit or recognition, but constantly doing what is best for others no matter the cost of themselves. I know I'm the king of run-on sentences. Call me Paul. But that's what's happening here. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Don't pursue it. What? Yep. The ones that are great in the kingdom of heaven don't care if they're great because it's all about surrender and self-sacrifice and love. And just when you want to argue with Jesus and say, you know, this sounds too tough. I don't want to do it. Jesus turns around and says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus plainly says, I am the greatest without saying I am the greatest. For the greatest in the kingdom of heaven isn't standing on a pedestal holding a bloody sword or a trophy. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is nailed to a tree, naked and destitute, dying for the sins of the world. The God of the universe, not seen in His glory, but walking with the common of humanity. Jesus' greatness Himself will one day, very soon, wash the feet of these men. A position none of them would ever put themselves in, nor ever think of, but their master, their rabbi, would take the form of a servant or slave and wash their feet. Martin Luther King Jr. is quoted as saying, not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great. Because greatness is determined by service. The beauty of Jesus' statement, backed up by Martin Luther King Jr., is that eternal greatness is available for everyone. I love that. I love that. Are you tired of spending your whole life feeling lesser than everybody else? Even in the church. Well, I, I can't be so-and-so, or, or they're just, they just got it together, and my family's a wreck, or I've made so many mistakes, and, and I can't do anything great for Jesus. That's not what Scripture says. Greatness is available to everyone in the kingdom of heaven based on your choice to be a servant of all. It's not in elevating ourselves above other people. Eternal greatness is actually lifting others upon our shoulders as we take on the lowest jobs and positions in order for others to experience His love and grace. And you know what? The beauty of living that way is that's where you experience the fullness of Jesus' presence. I used to think as a pastor that for me to really do something great for Jesus, I had to speak to people in stadiums and coliseums and be well-known and, and have people recognize me. No. That's not what Jesus pursued in His earthly ministry. He kept going out to solitary places. He kept getting on a boat in the Sea of Galilee and trying to get to the other side. He was pursuing the individuals, the, the core. And, and yes, he, he cared for the crowds, but he didn't pursue power and authority and position. He didn't seek that out. He constantly was pouring into individuals instead. Greatness is found in the gutters and not in palatial gardens. So each of us can be great in the kingdom of heaven. It isn't earned and it isn't achieved, and it isn't thrust upon us. Sorry, Shakespeare, you got that one wrong. 
It is solely dependent on our daily choice to live like children of our Heavenly Father, beautifully dependent upon Him, and humbly having no consideration for ourselves. Do you remember the days when you weren't self-aware as a child? When you just saw kids as kids, and it didn't matter what family they came from, or what skin color they were. I mean, kids are that way, right? They just see people and value. And they, they don't care what they wear, or if snot's running down their nose, or if they stink. They just are kids. That's where we got to be. Greatness comes to those who are not pursuing it. But instead, are pursuing those crushed by those seeking earthly greatness. I, I, don't, I know that sentence isn't structured well, but what I'm trying to say here is so much of what we're called to do is to pick up the pieces of those that are crushed by the one seeking earthly greatness. Greatness is caring for the poor and the weak and the wounded and the weary. And yeah, all of us just kind of want the easiest path of following Jesus, right? I, I want to help out the ones that can benefit me, that, you know, can, can bless me with stuff. And no, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the ones that choose to be servants and slaves. So, I want to finish by saying, don't seek greatness, seek Jesus. And as you seek Jesus, you'll find him in the lowest of places. And you'll experience his love all the more when you go to places you never would go on your own. And in that, you'll, you'll be so fulfilled that all that comparison and all that labeling, all of that just, just will melt away and you'll embrace who you are in Christ and you'll live a, a powerfully effective and fulfilled life in Christ. And you won't worry about eternal reward. You'll just live like children, young children, daily excited for what the next day is going to bring, knowing that your Heavenly Father has it under control. Jesus, I thank you and praise you for, for your presence and the power of your word. God, I thank you for blowing up our mindset. God, Lord, you know how, how, uh, how heavy the chains are that the pursuit of greatness and, and uh, viability competition is on our heart and life. Some of us are just so weary of comparison. And uh, even within the church, and it's killing us, Lord. We're living joyless lives. We're struggling to think, is he approving of me yet? Is he, am I doing enough that God loves me? Am, am, I, am, I, am I standing out? And, and, and we need to get back to thinking like children. My daddy loves me because I'm his. And nothing that I will ever do will cause him to love me less. And I can delight in knowing that my daddy has this. And I don't need to prove myself to anyone. I just need to exist and walk with him. God, give us those hearts that, that would seek and see. Not just seek, but to see those who have been crushed by the ambition of others and run to them with love and lift them up. 
And in so doing, God, we will understand your nature more as we become servants of all, like you're a servant of all. Take out of our hearts this desire for greatness and put in our hearts a desire to just draw close to you, to love you, and to love people. Make us the church. As you said to your disciples, but you will be different. Make us different. In your name we pray. Amen. As the lights dim down,